Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Wednesday, August 25th, 2021, and this is the Torah portion of Kitavo. That's the week that we're in. I've mentioned this before. The Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. So he once walked in to where his students were studying, and he told his disciples, which means you have to live with the times. Then he leaves. And they're like, what does that mean, live with the times? Are we supposed to become modern? <laughs> this is like in the 1700s. Like, whatever 1700 modern is, right? Should we, what does he mean? So his brother, the author of his brother, explained that what he meant was, you have to live with the weekly Torah portion. That's what's current. It's not whatever, you know, the news channels broadcast, whatever's on the radio, or whatever's on cable TV. What's current is the Torah portion. And it always has a message for our lives. If we don't see it, we have to just keep on digging. But it's definitely there. So in that vein, we are going to jump into the fourth reading of our Torah portion. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we'll do this together. Yes. We are always in style. Yes, we are always in style. Yes, 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 yes. Before you do that... um... I don't understand what we did yesterday where it says choose God. What do you mean choose God from what? What do you mean from the pagan idols? There's, what was choose I, God? Could be many things to choose God. I mean, do you choose, do we choose not you specifically, but do we choose God or other sorts of recreation? I mean, I think it's a very valid um uh, wish that we should always put God first because oftentimes we simply do not choose God. We choose other things. I mean, has anyone ever done something a little dishonest to make a buck? Sure. Unfortunately, sure. So what happens? You chose money over godly values. Not you. Again, one chose money. So it happens on occasion. Present company excluded. But it happens. So the message here is, choose God. Make God your priority. Make God your, your life, your aim, your focus. You're everything. Okay, um, I'm about to write a, write a song that's going to play on the radio here. Um, let's go. <laughs> Not exactly. Fourth reading, because again, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Fourth day, fourth reading, Kitavo. By the way, we didn't mention it yet, but this week's Torah portion has... Infamously, the 98 tochachot, the 98 klalot, the 98 curses that Moses relates to the Jewish people, negative things that might befall the Jewish people if they might turn away from God and not choose God. Okay, but let's read this. We're not there yet. Fourth reading, this is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse number 1. And Moses, here we go, and Moses and the elders of, the, of Israel commanded the people, saying, Observe all the commandment that I command you this day. Again, Hayom, today, this day, today. Okay, observe it all. And it will be, verse 2, take a look. And it will be on the day that you cross the Jordan to the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
that you shall set up for yourself huge stones and plaster them with lime. So let's, let's, let's take a half a second to reset here. Moses and the elders are commanding the people about something they should do when they cross the Jordan River. Moses knows he will not be there with them for the crossing. He will not join them on the journey over the river, through the river. What's that song? Over the river and through the bend? Something? Through the woods. Uh, Through the woods. There we go. I knew there was something along those lines. So he knows he's not going to go over the river and through the woods to grandma's house or a, a, I, and or the promised land. But he's telling them what to do when they do do that. He says you should set up huge stones and plaster them with lime. Huge stones means like massive stone, almost like monuments. Take a look. Verse 3. When you cross the river, you shall write upon them, write upon them, meaning the huge stones, all the words of this Torah in order that you may come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord God of your forefathers has spoken to you. The Jewish people were told by Moses and the elders, they were instructed that when they are crossing the Jordan River, they should inscribe upon massive huge stones the Torah. Now, does it mean the whole Torah? Does it mean the Ten Commandments? All right, this is already the subject of a lot of Talmudic back and forth, a lot of conversation, what exactly they were to write. I mean, the whole Torah, that's got to be a big stone or a very small font. I mean, right? There's how many letters in the Torah? 300, we say 600,000, but that's what the space is. There's about 300 plus that, a little over 300,000 letters in the Torah. That's a lot of letters to carve by hand into a stone. I don't care how big the stone is. So here's the point. There's a difference of opinion as to what exactly was being written and inscribed. Nonetheless, the point here is that what is the monument to the Jewish people? You know, when people do amazing, when nations do amazing things, they erect monuments. And sometimes it's a guy on a horse. And sometimes it's just a guy. Sometimes it's just a horse. Sometimes it's, uh, what else is it? I don't know, whatever. We've all seen monuments, right? Monuments. What's a Jewish monument? It's not a military thing. It's not a horse. It's not a gun. It's not a rifle. It's not... A Jewish monument is Torah. Torah being inscribed in stone. Aha! The power of stone. Right? So the Torah is being inscribed in stone. In, in, when I say inscribed, engraved. And engraving is powerful. As we've discussed many times. Engraving is different than... Engraving is different than writing. What do I mean? Writing is... I have a pen from Japan. A Muji pen, in case anyone's interested. So when you take a pen and you write on paper, you're applying ink on top of the paper, which means you're connecting two different things. You're layering one thing on top of another thing, but they're still two different things. When you engrave, the letters that are formed are part and parcel of the stone. It's not a separate entity. It's carved from the stone itself. It's the hollow of the stone. It's one entity. The message here is, there's a subtle message also. Subtle message here is that we're to integrate Torah into our lives to the point that it becomes part of us. And we become part of it. 
not two separate entities. I am me, and there's the stuff that I do on occasion. No, that's, I mean, that's good. Okay, that's step one. But that's ink on paper. That's, there's the paper, there's the ink, and they're touching. There's me, there's Torah, and we're, we're touching. This is, that's writing. Engraving means that you integrate Torah's values with, the life to, with your life to the point that it becomes part of you. That you look at the world with a Torah perspective, with a Jewish outlook. Think Jewish. It's hard. It's very hard to think Jewish. To the point that you probably... Some, of, some might not even understand what it means to think Jewish when they think Jewish. What does that even mean? You tell me what to do, I'll do it. But think Jewish? Our whole outlook is influenced by the culture that we're in. Our whole outlook. From what we believe is right or wrong or up or down or right. or Everything is defined by, by the information that's given to us. Torah has a different set of information. The more we study Torah... And it happens over time. But the more we study Torah and immerse ourselves in Jewish values, the more we begin thinking Jewishly. The whole outlook changes. You know, an outlook, a perspective, is like an invisible hand almost that guides and shapes everything that, everything that we're about. How we think, how we feel, what we think about, what we feel about. It's like this invisible hand, so to speak, that guides everything. It's so intrinsic. When I say intrinsic, it's so... It's so deep that we don't even recognize sometimes what the outlook is. Give an example. I was listening to, I was listening to a podcast um, a few months ago. I may have mentioned this uh, at the time. And I found it absolutely fascinating. What was the premise of this episode? It was about the bias or biases that exist in academic research. Essentially, all of... I'm going to stop sharing for a moment so I can see everybody. Essentially, all of scientific research, and when I say scientific research, I mean in the area of psychology or behavioral psychology, has been done in a certain context by scholars and academics, typically... Typically studying college students on campus. Why? Because that's where everyone is. The people studying are looking for people around them, and the people around them are college students. And because of this, study after study after study has mapped the way people think. And this becomes an axiom, axiomatic. This is how people think. This is what people want. This is how people love. This is how people relate to each other. As, as, as many studies and as many people have been asked, here's the point. It's all within one genre. It's one group. Which is why these these axioms of human behavior, like how people think and how people feel and how people react, completely fails when you go to a foreign country that is very different than ours. 
So the example in this podcast was, and I forget the, 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 the exact example. Might have been something about relationships or what people want or whatever it was. But it was about a country in South America. Not like, a, I'm not talking about like a, a tribe somewhere in, a, no. This is like a country. But that's not, it doesn't have the same type of structure and, and academic, academia, you know, college structure, university structure as we have. It's just a completely different society. And people think and feel differently. And what, and what works here doesn't work there. It's the height, and, and, and hear me out here, it's the height of arrogance to think that the way we think is the way everybody thinks or the way everybody should think. But here's the point with biases. You don't even know that you have it. You're not even aware that you have it because it's so it's such a deep-seated bias that it becomes normal. It's like, well, no, this is it's not a bias. This is just the way things are to you. So getting back to what I'm saying, uh, the perspective that we have, everyone has, in Yiddish we would call it a, a kuk. Kuk means a look, a perception, a perspective, an outlook, a vision. Everyone has one. <laughs> Even if you don't know what yours is, you still have one. And that affects how you think, how you feel, what you think about, how, what you feel about, what you care about, Right? From A to Z. And Torah has a different perspective. I'm not going to say an opposite perspective. No, sometimes values are aligned. But Torah has its own perspective. The more we study Torah, the more we can think different. The more we can think like the Torah way. We can think Jewish. And that's powerful. It's priceless. And so the reason why I'm saying this is because this is another layer of understanding of what it means to engrave on stone. To write on paper means that you have two separate entities. You have the paper is the paper, the ink is the ink, and they're touching. For the moment, they're touching. There's me, I have my perspective. There's God, God has his perspective, Torah, mitzvah, whatever. And once in a while, one is applied to the other, I do a mitzvah. It's not who I am, it's what I do. Engraving means... The letters are part of the stone. They're carved into the stone. The letters are literally cut into the stone. And that means that the values on a personal level would be not cut into us, that's a negative connotation, but would be one with us. Ingrained. Ingrained, maybe. perfect. Ingrained. Ingrained, yes. Ingrained within us. Okay, so that's a little bit about, about the engraving. But getting back to the stone. Yes. The stones aren't sapphire this time, right? No, not these ones. No. No, no they didn't use the good stuff. I mean, I'm kidding. They, this was just, um, I don't know what kind of stones, but I know it was plastered with, um, I think the Torah says what the, what, what the, the formula was. Lime? Lime. Yeah, lime. Yeah, yeah, lime. There you go. Um, not like lime, like squeezing the lime on it, but whatever. Um, okay. So this is what Moses tells the people. I'm not going to go in with you. You're going to go into the land. You're going to cross the Jordan. Create a monument. What's your monument? Not a bow and arrow and not a shield and not a horse and not a rifle. They didn't have rifles then. Spoiler alert. None of these things. Your legacy, your monument is Torah, Jewish values. 
milk and honey appears once again. When you cross, says Moses, you shall write upon them, upon these stones, all the words of this Torah. Again, dispute about what that means. In order that you may come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey. If somebody ever asks you, where does it say that the Torah, where, where does it say in the Bible that Israel is the land flowing with milk and honey? You can respond, where? How, which one do you want? It's like multiple times, a half a dozen times. All right, so uh, I interrupted the sentence. So you should, write these on the, you should write them on the stones in order that you may come to the land that the Lord is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord God of your forefathers has spoken to you. Okay, so far so good. Verse 4, And it will be, when you cross the Jordan, that you shall set up these stones, regarding which I command you this day on Mount Abel. Ebal. In Hebrew, it's Abel. All right. Mount Abel, and you shall plaster them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. So you set up the stones, you build an altar, you shall not wield any iron upon them, upon the stones. Why not? Hold on, let me explain this for a second. This becomes a, a prohibition, by the way. So it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah prohibition. Not to have any iron to cut the stones when you build an altar. Really, when you build anything for the temple. You should not use, certainly for the altar, you should not use metal implements. Why? Because... Metal is typically used for weapons to take life. Um, you should know, because I think it's really interesting. There's a custom to either take all the knives off the table before the blessing after meal, before grace after meals. Like, for example, Friday night, you sit down to a Friday night meal and you have a knife to cut the challah, Right? So before you say the blessing after the meal, the Baruch Hashem, da da da, right? That blessing. So you would take off the you take off the knives from the table, or at least cover them. Why? Because yes, the knife was used for the challah, right? So that's a good thing. But a knife, metal implement, can be used also for violence. Therefore, on the ta- on our, our on our table, which is like an altar, we don't have any iron, any metal, any knives on it. At that point, um, some, for this reason, have the custom not to cut the challah on Shabbat. Have you ever seen this? People will take a challah and rip it apart with their hands and, and hand out pieces that they've, you've seen, yeah. People will not use a knife for this reason. It was in the, the movie at the wedding. Was when it? Came, yeah, when he came around, you know, t- to give the band the... Piece, yeah. Was he ripping it and not cutting it? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Some will do it, and that, we might say that that way was a little informal or whatever it is, but some will, I'm not saying that it, that it wasn't formal, but one might say, well, you know, who knows. But even formally, sit down to a meal. I mean, the good news is everyone just washed their hands, I'm just saying. But the, guy, the, the, the head of household would, in some traditions, some customs, some communities, will actually rip the challah. Um, it might be a safari custom, or I don't know. I don't know. I can't say for sure. It's it's not my custom. It's not a custom that I grew up with. But nonetheless, it, it is a custom out there, and it's for the same reason. Let's continue. So this is where where 
Moses tells the people, build an altar, but no iron upon it, no cutting it. How did they cut it? You have to find another way to cut it. There was a worm that helped them cut it. A miraculous thing. Verse 6, you shall build the altar of the Lord your God out of whole stones. Oh, there you go. That makes it easier. Whole stones. Find perfectly square whole stones. Done. Right? And on it. Oh, there you go. Donna's got a whole stone. This is actually a piece of stone mountain. Nice. I mean, yeah, because it's stone mountain is actually like a lot. I believe it's limestone quarry. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the way, I was wondering, Don, I was wondering what happened to the guy's nose. The carved. I'm not getting controversial here. This is not a, a comment on what's in Stone Mountain. That was a joke. Okay. Um, so you shall build an altar out of whole stones, and on it, on the altar, you shall offer up burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall slaughter peace offerings. Remember, burnt offerings, this is, uh, um, we're pulling on our memory now from Leviticus. Burnt offerings are the ones that are given as a, donation as a as just a I want to give a gift to God and the whole thing gets burnt on the altar then there's peace offerings also voluntary offerings but peace offerings would be where some is burnt on the altar but some the Kohen eats and some of the animal is eaten by the one who who donated it so you shall slaughter peace offerings in addition to burnt offerings you should also do the peace offerings the shlomim you shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and basically the message here is when you safely cross the Jordan River you should rejoice and offer sacrifices and offerings to God. That's the point, right? You're going to cross a river. It's going to be, you know, potentially treacherous. Hashem will take you across safely. Don't forget to thank God. And now getting back to the, to the stones, you shall write upon the stones all the words of this Torah very clearly. Ba'er heitev. I'm going to explain what this means in a moment. Moses... And I, Legibly, no, it means more than just legibly, as we'll see. Moses and the Levitic priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Pay attention and listen. Haskes ushema Yisrael. Pay attention and listen. Not just listen, or hear, but pay attention. This day you have become a people to the Lord your God. Interesting, this day you become a people. One might argue, no, that happened with the Exodus, or with the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Forty years later, now we've become a people. Again, I, I, I've been alluding to this the last few days. There's, a, there's not a new covenant, but a, another covenant. Well, it's, it still sounds wrong when I'm saying it. All right, whatever it is. There's another covenant being, being created with the people right now. And a covenant is a fancy word. It means another commitment is being taken here by the people to God. Moses asking the people to recommit once again, or to commit once again to God. So yeah, Abraham and God had a deal. And then God and the Jewish people had a deal at Sinai. And now, shortly before Moses passing, he's saying, we got to pledge again. You know how yesterday you were referring to the civic marriage customs that we have? Yes. One custom is like maybe 10-year wedding anniversary, a renewal of vows. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Love that. Perfect. It's renewing the vows. Excellent. Renewing the vows. Um, Verse 10, you shall therefore obey the Lord your God. In other words, having renewed your vows, therefore, you got to be committed. You have to be faithful. Obey the Lord your God and fulfill His commandments and His statutes, which I command you this day. All right, that's it for the reading. Let's look at Rashi, and then I want to share with you some additional insights. Um, take a look 
at this Rashi, which is very important about the sets of stones that they were supposed to set up. So Rashi clarifies that there are multiple sets of stones upon which the Torah was written that, that the Jewish people were instructed to set up. Sounds like just kind of one set of stones. Nope, multiple sets, as Rashi clarifies right here. And this is all based on the Talmud and, and the rabbinic analysis of the verses. Um, number one is in the Jordan. You actually put the stone monuments, you set them up in the Jordan River. And after this, you shall take out other stones from there, and out of this second set of stones, build an altar on Mount Abel. Consequently, you find that there were three places at which constructions of stones were set up. So number one, A, or A, one. Twelve stones were put together in the Jordan. So they put up twelve stones in the Jordan. The same number of stones were set up at Gilgal, i.e. The, the Israelites first stopped in the land of Israel. So they went across the Jordan and they stopped at Gilgal. So they were supposed to set up 12 stones in the Jordan and then 12 stones again at Gilgal. All 12 stones had Torah text on it. And see the same number of stones, 12, at Mount Ebal. The above is taught in Tractate Sota, that's the Talmud, where the Talmud, citing chapter 4 of Joshua, provide, proves the above. So there's, in our... We're reading here in Deuteronomy how Moses is telling the people what they should do when they cross the Jordan and enter the land. Wonderful. But in the book of Joshua, after the five books of Moses close, the next holy Jewish book of Scripture is the book of Joshua, which tells the story about how Joshua took over from Moses and led the people into the promised land. And there in chapter 4 of Joshua, it clarifies all the various sets of stones that were set up. And you can see them alluded to in these verses because it repeats setting up stones multiple times. There are three iterations of the stones. Okay, now let's see what other Rashi's there are. Be'er Hete, very clearly. I said not just legibly, but Rashi adds from the Talmud. Again, Talmud tractate Sota. He says, very clearly means in 70 languages they were meant to translate the Torah on the stones. Interesting. They were meant to write the translation of the Torah on the Stones. Um, and once again, this, this insight that we had yesterday or a few days ago, this day you will become a people to the Lord your God. Rashi says, not, which, what day is this day? Today? Wednesday, August 25th. Every single day it should seem to you as though you are today entering into a covenant with Him. So every single day is meant, and see Brachot 63b, it's again from the Talmud, every day should be, we should renew our vows Every single day. Okay, now with God. Now, or with anyone that we care about. Let's, I want to share with you some additional insights that are not contained in Rashi. So, number one. Number one. When it comes to plastering the stones with lime, there are two opinions. I mentioned this last year when we studied it. If you were there then, or, or you might remember this, but it's, I always think about this when encountering this verse. They set up stones. They engraved it. Um, they were supposed to engrave it with words of Torah and plaster it with lime. The question is, what order did this happen? Were they engraving on the stone, on the bare stone itself, and then covering it with this lime coating? Or did they first cover the stones with the lime coating and then engrave on top of the lime coating? This becomes a subject of Talmudic analysis and dispute. 
the Talmud itself gets into a uh, difference of opinion as to as to whether the text was under the layer of plaster of lime or above it. And the commentators ask, according to the opinion that says that they first plastered it with lime and then they engraved the letters, it makes sense. You could see the letters. The letters are on top of the, uh, the engraved. Uh, the engraved letters are on top of the, of the thing. But according to the opinion that says first they, engra- they engraved it in the stone and then they covered it, so then why do you engrave it if you can't see it? You engrave the letters in the stone and then you cover it. Imagine, it's like you, you um, I was going to say, like imagine you write a mezuzah with the text of the Torah and then you put it into a case, but we actually do that. But imagine you, write, you, you, you inscribe it on a thing and then you, you put it, you put it, you, you, Plaster with lime, and now you can't see it anymore. So what was the point? Waste of time. So there's a commentary that explains like this. And it's like a deeper understanding of it. Personalize, to personalize it. The message here is that sometimes to get Torah, to access it, you got to dig a little bit. It might not be above the surface. It might be something that you have to dig to find. This is true in anything, in any meaningful endeavor in life. Oftentimes... To find the truth, to find the depth of the situation, the person, the thing, the occurrence, the challenge, you gotta dig. You gotta peel off that top layer. That becomes a message in life. If you only wanna look at the surface, you're gonna miss a lot of the messaging. If we only look at the surface, we might not realize that there's a whole script right underneath the surface. So, what's the first step in any situation? Look beneath the surface. Look a little bit deeper. When we look a little bit deeper, entire worlds and vistas of insight uh, may be revealed for us. So that's one message that I wanted to add. Um, I wanted to add, there was another thing that I wanted to say that I'm forgetting. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Very clearly, Rashi says 70 languages. So the question is asked, why did they need to translate the Torah into 70 languages? It's like, who was it for? Who was it for? The message here is that multiple messages, things that we've mentioned in prior classes in various contexts. I want to put a few ideas together, and this will be, I think, the final thing that I want to share today. 70 languages. Why 70? There were 70 primary nations. So why, is it, why did the Jewish people need to translate the Torah into 70 languages? When I keep it in Hebrew, whoever gets it, gets it. The message here is that Torah has to speak the language of every person, of every nation. There are divine values, Torah values, that need to be disseminated to all. Now, it doesn't mean everyone needs to become Jewish, necessarily. But what it does mean is that there are divine values, divine ideas that need to get out there. And so putting it in the 70 languages... Right? And the reason why I say 70 languages, just to be very clear here, we know about 70 facets, right? Donna's, uh, Donna's <laughs> company organization. So in addition, there are 70 languages. 70 languages means the entire spectrum of human expression, of human understanding. We think the way we speak, different languages, different tongues. So the message here is Torah needs to speak our language. Yes, in 2021, the end of August 2021, Torah needs to speak our language. Got to translate the Torah into the languages of the world and, second point, into the language of our lives. 
So whatever we're going through, whatever we're dealing with, the Torah needs to speak with us, to speak to us. Now, why does it need to? That's a weird expression, right? It needs to. Either it does or it doesn't. It does. It does. But sometimes we might not realize it. Sometimes we might not realize that the Torah is speaking our language. And then it becomes important to, to, um, to discover that and to recognize that. All right. Um, to, to, to make Torah speak to us, not make it, to, to recognize, uncover the truth of how Torah speaks to us and our challenge in this moment in very timely times. So that's a little bit about the 70 languages. It's about speaking a universal language and also a personal language speaking to us. And if it doesn't speak to us, then at the very least, it's a missed opportunity because there's so much wealth and insight and inspiration to be had and to be extracted from Torah. If we're not getting it, then we're, I mean, we might be studying it, but if we're not drawing the wisdom into our lives, then it's a, um, at the very least, it's a missed opportunity. All right, my friends, let's commit today. I think we have a, we have a, a theme that we can say captures today's conversation. It's about engraving Torah in our hearts and minds, in our perspective, in our, in our outlooks, hopes and dreams. The idea that, to- that we should start thinking Jewish. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it happens slowly over time. It's not like, you know, upload, download some software. Oh, now I, I'm toggling which language on my computer? English, Hebrew, Yiddish, right? So I'm toggling Jewish, thinking Jewish. It's not so easy. It's not so simple. It's about immersing oneself in Jewish thought, Jewish way of thinking. Little by little, lad, lad, we begin thinking Jewishly. Um, and what does it mean to think Jewishly? Now we can fabrang for a, for a long time, but it's a combination of thinking positively, hope for the future, right? Looking at others with a kind eye and a gentle eye and generosity. So many different Jewish traits, different Jewish... It's when you look at something, what do you see? What do you see? You can't teach it, but you can learn it. All right. My friends, it's good to see you all. Mark, it looks like your mouth is moving, but we can't hear you because you're, you're muted. Yeah, I, I have a question for you. Sure. Yeah, early in the Parsha, uh, where it says we, we were few in number, uh, Rashi says that means with 70 souls. Yes. And here it says 70 languages. And so does it mean, which is what you're saying, is it, is it referring to... The, to different nations or is referring as you were saying to speaking to each and every one of us in our own particular way it's both I mean on a literal level it means the 70 languages means the 70 nations of the world there were 70 original of the Jewish family that went down to Egypt with Jacob there were 70 souls 70 Jewish souls or children descendants of Jacob and that corresponds to the 70 nations so there is a there is a there is a connection there but you know what they say the famous expression 70 Jews 70 languages. I'm kidding. That's not said no one ever. But it's, um, it, it literally means the literal 70 nations and languages of the world, or the core original 70 languages. Um, but, like you're saying, it could also refer to the 70 within, within our own ranks, 70 different shades of personality. I like that idea. 
And the truth is, even within ourselves, one day we feel like this, the next day we feel like something else. Our moods change a lot. So it's good that Torah can speak to all of our moods when we're happy and we know it. Study Torah. When we're, God forbid, not so happy and we know it also. Study Torah. When we're grateful and we know it. When we're confused and we're not sure if we are. We should always study Torah. Yeah, I'm modifying the song. Donna, uh, yes. So this kind of goes with what I was asking yesterday. So God wants all the nations to be exposed to the Torah, but is not asking that all of the nations follow our mitzvah. Correct. Correct. But I mean, wouldn't, I mean, it would seem that God would want more. I don't know. Everybody to. <laughs> I, if I were God, maybe it would be, look different. I don't, I, I don't know. What can I tell you? I don't write the rules. I'm just, I'm just working through them. I don't mean rules. I, I, I hear you. What, you know, that, you're saying if God wants us to eat matzah and Passover, everyone should eat matzah and Passover. All right. It's our story. It's our, it's our people's story. It's not everyone's story. Um, God wants a mezuzah on the home. Everyone should have a mezuzah on the home. No, but, uh, but I mean, one of, we're doing all this to perfect the world. And it would seem, I mean, two things. It seems like a very big burden on such a small people. I mean, how can we handle it all? And then, you know, and then it would seem, right, I don't know. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> that's why Jews have, are so complicated, because there's so much, right. so much going on. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah. Responsibility, not responsibility. Okay. Responsibility, responsibility. Yeah. yeah, it's like. Um, no, but I mean, I like the fact that we we, we were given this special responsibility. Did, didn't Te, didn't Tevye say you know couldn't you have chosen someone else? Didn't he, didn't right. he say that? <laughs> <laughs> or choose a few more so that it's uh, it's the, the burden is shared. Look, right. you know, there's the collective, the individual responsibility. It still still doesn't go away, even if others would have their responsibility. So. You know, we got our stuff, and God doesn't ask more from us than what we can, what we can handle. That's, we believe that. So we do our best. We're not going to be perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. So that's the, that's the idea. All right, it's great to see you all. Announcement tonight. Very special edition of Torah Studies. It's sponsored um, in honor of Adina Malka Northrup. And please God her good health. So that is tonight at 7.30, both live on Zoom and live in person. Two opportunities to connect, Zoom or at IJA on the Beltline. 7.30 p.m. it begins. The topic will be focusing on the curses, which we have not yet gotten up to in the Torah portion, but it's coming up soon. 98 different curses or admonitions Moses says to the people th negative things that might befall them if, God forbid, they don't keep their end of the deal, the covenant. So we're going to look at them from a deeper perspective and find the blessings in the curses. That is tonight, it has to do with ships and Egypt, and I can't tell you anymore because I don't want to give too much away. Join me tonight for a wonderful session. All right, um, Sarah. Can I just say real quick, do you guys sure. get, um, I know they're written by Steve Freeman, um, the daily doses? You know what, I, I don't get that email daily, but I'm sure some people do. Anybody get getting uh, the daily doses? It's fantastic. Yeah, 
Well, so yeah, ultimately this one, it was a few days ago, probably not yesterday, the day before. So he was like, everything that happens to us ultimately is just so that we return. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. I was just was thinking of that. Yeah. Okay. That's good. By the way, Tzvi Freeman now lives in Atlanta. I'm just saying. And yeah, I remember when that happened. Yeah, and his wife taught the the 60 days course last night. Very nice class last night. Um, yes, Ray. Um, is there a different link than every Wednesday night? No, it's been the same link since uh, oh, since okay. we started. Yeah, okay. yeah, always the same link. I sent it out anyway, just because you know it's good oh, to have it fresh. But yeah, same link. It's on the website. It's in the, every email that I've sent out for Wednesday night in the last year and a half. So it's, yeah, the same Zoom link. Um, and now we have the, uh, the live in-person option as well. So join whatever way that you can. We'll study Torah tonight. Okay, we'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Pleasure.